you'll turn in your Bibles, please, to Psalm 32. I imagine that saints in glory never sing about themselves. I imagine that the only thing a saint in glory would ever sing about is their Savior, who their Savior is and what he did. But if you're going to sing about the saints in glory, I think this is what you would sing. You would sing that blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven. Blessed, happy. Happy is the man whose sin is covered. Happy. Happy is the man that the, that the Lord does not count against him the things that he's done that, that is wrong. And blessed be the man when his heart is not tricky. Those are the four things that we looked at last time. We looked at, I'd say, one of the most beautiful and comforting of all of David's psalms. But the problem is that this is the end of the story. When you start this psalm, if you'll read with me, start, but then when you get to verse 3, it all changes. We see the beginning of the story long before there was the end of the story. So let's read together. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. Selah. I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity I have not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Selah. For this shall every one that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in the floods of great waters they shall not come nigh unto him. Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from my trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct thee. I'll teach thee in thy way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. Be not as the horse or the mule which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle, lest they come near to thee. Many sorrows shall come to the wicked, but he that trusts in the Lord, mercy shall compass him round about. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you that are upright in heart. So over the last few weeks, we've been looking in the 30s of the book of Psalms. We did uh, Psalm 33 together, which gave you numerous reasons for praising God. Why is God to be praised? Why should that be all that saints in glory do? Why should that be what we do? If I wasn't so sluggish and slow, if, my, if I wasn't so completely wrapped up with the world that I'm in, that would be all I would ever do, is praise God for his excellencies, for his perfections. And Psalm 33 says we are to sing with joy. We are to sing with skill. We are to practice and do as best that we can to make God famous in this land. Then we went to Psalm 34, which was David's testimony when he was with Abimelech, the king of Gath and the Philistines, and he was about to die, and God delivers him through a most amazing way. You think he almost got out of it, like a James Bond movie, that he got out of death, but God was there 
helping him. Even though he was in the middle of problems, God was completely on his side. And he gave a testimony of what does that mean that God was there and heard me and delivered me. And then, after I went to those, I said, I would be so wrong not to go back and tell you what, what's the number one reason why the saints would praise the Lord. And that's that my sins are forgiven. That my crimes against God are wiped away. They can't even be found. God can't find them. God is the only being in the universe that controls his own memory. And he has decided never to remember our sins. Why? 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 Is it because some people are nice people and their sins are not that bad? And other people are awful people and their sins are bad? If that were true, there would still be a God to fear, I suppose. A God of power is a God to be feared. But a God like the God Jehovah, the God, the Father of Jesus, is the most sweet being that exists. There's nothing like him. He has no equal. He has no peer. There's none like him among the gods. There's none like him in heaven or on earth in the time past or in the time future. And he has decided to put his love on us. And he has forgiven us our sins. But do you see, if that were the only thing, if verse 2 ended this psalm, it would make me scratch my head and wonder why that the countless millions in this world are not following the Lord with joy. And they're not. Because straight is the way and narrow is the path that leads to life. And few there are that find it. And wide is the path and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many there are that go thereat. And the people who are in glory were one time on that road. We were running our hell-bound race indifferent to the cost, not counting the fact that we had offended God. We wondered why God would even be bother. It's such a big deal. If God was so good, he could simply just forgive us, and all will be let in, and all dogs go to heaven. And there are people that that is what they think. They believe a mythology about the God of heaven and earth because they want him to be as they make him. They want him to be what they decided he should be. And that is tolerant, totally forgiving, looking the other way, and taking anything that we offer with, with open arms. The problem is the only God that we can trust is the God that has disclosed himself. And this is the God that is the Old Testament and the New Testament God. There is no one else except the God of heaven and earth that disclosed himself and told us about himself. And David said, blessed is the man who God does not count his, his iniquity against him and whose heart is not tricky. But, so let's go back to three and let's look at this horrible time in every one of our lives, possibly in our lives still, where God had to do something amazing. And that was that he had to completely wean us from our sins and for, from the shiny toys that we follow, that we would love him. We had to know that he was valuable and have a desire to follow. And God did that in our heart. And it was the most incredible mercy. But as David talks about his testimony again, this is the testimony of David, it was crushing. It was awful. 
and it was prolonged. Now, the penitential psalms, the ones I can think of in the moment are Psalm 6, David wrote. Penitence is where I'm sorry. God, I'm sorry. I'm penitent. Will you please, please forgive me because I know what I've done. I've offended you. You are God and I've offended you and I'm sorry. And so Psalm 6 comes to mind. Psalm 31, Psalm 32, Psalm 38, Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is the only one that we know the context of. Do you remember I told you Psalm 34 had a context? He went to Gath in the Philistines and he, would, and he was trapped and about to die, and God delivered him. And the psalm was a commemorative psalm written about that experience. Well, Psalm 51 has a context, and it says at the beginning of 51 that this was the time when David was pouring his heart out to the Lord in contrition and sorrow for his sin that he committed with Bathsheba. But when you go back to Samuel and you read about that event you realize that for long months, David wasn't sorry at all. If you go back in your mind and go, what did David do when he sinned with Bathsheba? He saw her, then he planned, then he had her summoned, then she came to him. And then long after she was pregnant, then he decided that he had to cover up all of his sin. It was a cover-up, and this took months. And for nine months... Bathsheba was, was, was pregnant, and she delivers the baby, and the baby is about to die. And David decides to pray, and he's fasting and praying and fasting and praying. And, the, and Nathan, the prophet, comes to him and tells him a story, and then, realize, and then David realizes that he was talking about him. It took a year for David to come back to the Lord, a year. Now, when you think of a year out of someone's life, that's a long time. Month after month, day after day, and David is still the king, and David still loves God. The problem is, there is nothing left. When you are sinning against your maker as a non-believer, you're just pouring offense, one offense on another. When you're sinning against your maker and you are a believer and your sins have been placed on the Lord Jesus and all of, of his, all of his perfections died in your place and now to sin against God, God refuses to play games. And he says here, look in verse 3 with me, when I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. I was so absolutely trapped. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't think. I had no joy. I had no life. There wasn't anything in me. I was just a zombie. I was going through the motions day after day after lifeless day. There was no joy. I would pray. I would do what I was supposed to do, I thought. And heaven was always quiet. There was never a smile. There was never encouragement. Do you see, we have to be encouraged. We can't just be told what to do. The Ten Commandments did not work with us. You can't just tell us what our duties are and then expect us to do them. We'll all fail. There will be nobody in heaven, nobody to say glory, hallelujah. All of that had to be given to us. 
And God does something that only God could do because only God is good enough to do that. And that is his hand was heavy. He throttled David. His hand was so heavy, David couldn't breathe. He never had joy. He never had moisture in his mouth. He went in a lifeless, zombie way, just waiting for his last day. And you think that that is me. But I tell you, it is the greatest kindness that David could have ever been showed by the Lord. For the Lord to simply say, whatever, David, means that God is no longer God. He's no longer just. He's no longer righteous. He no longer cares about righteousness. And that's all that God cares about. His righteousness is God's job. That's what he does as he proclaims his own righteousness. And when you have been forgiven in Jesus, you are now brought into right relationship with God, right relationship with him. Suddenly now, there is a royal road. And I know that if you're a believer in here, you've walked the royal road with no joy, no energy, and no success. Years will go by and you'll never lead anyone to the Lord. You'll, you'll do everything you're supposed to do and nothing will ever happen. Your family will, will just lose at the, at the shards and, and fly away. You, everything that you think of you're supposed to have, you'll never have. You'll never be contented. You'll never expect God's mercy. In fact, in the biggest back of your head, you doubt that you're saved at all because you don't have any I love you back. Even when you say I love you to God, there's no I love you back because God is waiting for you to do what you must do because you were brought into perfect relationship. You weren't just looked over. You were perfectly brought into relationship and he makes you be true with him. And so in David's case, it took a year. I know of people that this has been 20 years or 25 years where they know what God, that God wants them to do something. They know what it is. They just can't. They either have too much shame, too much embarrassment, or they don't want to stop the sin that they love. Do you see? When I were to tell you, as you expect preachers to tell you, that you sleep with that woman who's not your wife, you're committing an absolute offense against a holy God. Well, the problem is a person might have a twinge of regret or a twinge of conscience, but that's not conviction of sin. A twinge of, or even a threat of hell is not a conviction of sin because a conviction of sin does something. It leads you back to the Lord. If you have a conviction of sin, it's the most precious thing that you've ever had. It's the most kind thing God's ever done to you. Because it will lead you back to the Lord. If Satan accuses you of your sins, and Satan will stand all... He's, in fact, that's what Satan means. Satan is the word accuser. He's the accuser of the brethren. And all day long, he accuses you of your sins. And in this case, he's not a liar, though Satan is certainly a liar. Satan will stand and tell me my sins. And the problem is, when... When Satan accuses me, it does not lead me normally to the Lord. What it does is it makes me run. Adam runs and hides 
and hides himself because he's naked. He knows the offense. He knows that he's not acceptable, but he doesn't know what to do with it. He knows there's a breakage in the relationship, but he doesn't know what to do with it. So I say, you're sleeping with a woman who's not your wife. You may go, oh, yeah, that's bad. And then it's gone. It goes away. Your regret goes away, and you return to your normal. There isn't anything real. Nothing happened. That's not conviction of sin. And if Satan accuses you of your sins, that's not conviction of sin. That's a satanic attack. And a, and a, and a person who's right with God simply says, I'm not going to heaven based upon my good works, upon keeping the law. I've broken every commandment. I'm going to heaven because I have a Savior who's perfect. Do you see it? When Satan accuses someone spirit-filled, all it does is make you treasure your, your Savior. I, I laugh sometimes when you hear that, and you will hear that, that you are a sinner. You're as bad as anybody. How can you think that you're going to heaven? Why do you not think that other people are as good as you? And I simply go, because God is the one who judges in righteousness. And I'm not righteous, and he doesn't judge me on my merits. He judges me on Christ's merits. And it's gone. Satan flees. You flee, and Satan departs. That's, the, that's what happens. But conviction of sin is something way, way different. Conviction of sin is something that God does. Do you see it in verse 4? For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. Your hand was upon me. God did this. And it's not pleasant. It's awful. And if you sat under conviction of sin, you can hardly breathe. You don't want to eat. And everything changes. Do you see that you can actually see physically into this person? This is David. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old. They, they wore away by, reading of my, by reason of my groaning all day long. King James says roaring, just moaning. All I did was moan all day long. Do you see it? You're simply wasting away. There isn't anything, there's no fun, and you, God, did it. Do you see, conviction of sin is the Holy Spirit working in your life. And, he's, and suddenly all relationships go away in your mind. Your relationships have no vibrancy. You, you are a lousy dad because you can't be a disciplinarian when you are not under discipline. You're a lousy husband because you can't love the way your wife needs you to love when all you're thinking about is you and your pity party because you're not getting your way and you don't have what you want. Suddenly now, you will do whatever it takes. Now, some people simply backslide. They simply say, fine. And they go and they do whatever everybody else does. The problem is, you will never unlearn as a believer what God has already showed you. You can't. You hate it. You want to go back. You want to go back to the vomit like the dog. And others do, and they're fine. And you look, and Psalm 73 was another one, said, I look and I'm troubled all day long. I'm trying to be righteous and all I am is all day long troubled. And these people who, they, they never think about it ever. They're never troubled. Their hearts aren't troubled. 
Do you think that the people who are, are hell-bound have any problem at all? They're not, they don't have any, any conscience, no, no twins. There's nothing against. They're okay with God. I witnessed to a fellow a couple weeks ago, and I said, but what do you do with your sin? What do you do with your guilt? I think I said guilt. What do you do with your guilt? How, how do you deal with it, knowing that you're guilty in front of a God? And he looked and said, I'm not guilty in front of God. There wasn't the first concept that there was guilt. There was no feeling of problem. They were fine. And in some ways you go, wow, there was no, there's no stress, there's no pain, there's nothing. They're, they're just enjoying their life until their very last breath. That, in some ways, wow, that's great because God always tells me when I'm wrong with him. I'm al- I always know. And it seems like that I'm such a doofus that I'm always wrong with him. And I'm always repenting. And then... If you're not strong in your faith, you'll think, well, something's wrong with me. All these other beautiful Christian people are all so good and perfect, and they never sin. Well, I must be the secret sinner, and so you become a hypocrite. Do you see all your possibilities? You either become a complete backslider and try to play the world's game, but never happy again. You'll never enjoy it again. It doesn't matter. You can stay high. You can stay stoned. You can stay sleeping. It doesn't matter. You will never, ever Go back to that idea that it's all right because God won't let you. You're his. God disciplines his own. He doesn't discipline the neighbors. He disciplines his own. And if you belong to him through your faith in Christ, you'll never unlearn it. And, and you're like, that frustrates you because you want to run like Adam. You want to run and hide. And God comes looking for you because he made a covenant with you. He doesn't say, oh, you don't want to be in my covenant again? Fine. Well, have a good life. That covenant means forever and ever and ever and ever and whatever it takes, he will do in your life. And if that means putting your head heavy on you until you can't breathe for decades, then that's what it means. Because he loves you and he wants you back. That that's what he's effective in his discipline. Let me read, let me read a, another psalm to you. This is Psalm 38. I told you that there are several penitential psalms. The 1 in 51 we know is about Bathsheba. But these, it doesn't say. But goodness, when you see David under a long period of time, extended period of time, where he is, he's under God's heavy hand, I, I imagine that they're both talking about the same issue. Because that was his issue where he was a year of trying to live a life with no power. Where the Holy Spirit had nothing to do. He was simply doing it himself. Trying to be a Christian on his own. But, but he, nothing was happening as a result. This is Psalm 38. I'll read from 2 to 8. For thine arrows stick fast in me, and thine hand presses me sore. There's no soundness in my flesh because of thine anger. Neither is there any rest in my bones because of my sin. For mine iniquities are over my head as a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and are corrupt because of my foolishness. I'm troubled. I'm bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day long. For my loins are filled with a loathsome disease. And there is no soundness in my flesh. I'm feeble. And sore broken, I have roared by reason of the disquietness of my heart. I know this. I know exactly what he's talking about. I know this exactly. I've lived there. 
I've lived there trying to say, no, I'll decide what I'll do. I want to go to heaven because Jesus is my Savior, and I love the gospel because that's another thing you can do. You can go and be a backslider, or you can be a hypocrite, or you can be seriously, seriously religious. Religious, religious, religious. This is the little kid that hugs you when they should have been obeying you. You've all had children. That's exactly what happens. They don't want to obey you because they don't want to do what you've said, but instead they want to say, I love you. And that's when you say, if you love me, keep my commandments. Jesus did the same. That is, that's what's happened here. So his silence was his guilt. And it was physical. And everybody could see it. He was drained. It, it, it showed to others. And this happens in our lives. It's not something you can control. You, you can't live well. You can't control your life because you do not set the dictates of your relationship with God. God does. And he is a God of truth. Truth is under his throne, it said. It's one of the foundations of his throne. Everything about God is true. It's not shady. It's not covered up. It's not fake It's not spinned in such a way. God expects you to be honest with him, and you live honestly. And David said, blessed is the man who's in his spirit there is no guile. There's no trickiness. He's not trying to deceive you. He's simply who he is, accepting God's favor. And do you see, God was merciful by doing this. Later in Psalm 19, two paces in Psalm 19, David says this, It's good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are right, and that thou, in thy faithfulness you've afflicted me. David recognizes it's a kindness, because if it's the Holy Spirit doing it, it will drive me to the Lord. It'll drive me to repentance, and it's real repentance. Now, you take two people. You take a person who is under conviction of a sin and struggled with that and fought against that and then recognized that, that God expects you to live in a certain way and it's not based upon your abilities, it's based upon his abilities and you're depending upon him and you live victoriously. That person will be a Christian for all of their lives. They will, they will endure hard times. They'll endure scary times. When, when persecution comes, they'll endure it. Take the other person that you wanted to spare them when you shared the gospel with them. You wanted to tell them how therapeutic a relationship with Jesus would be and how much better their life would be and how less problems that they would have. And so you're very nice to them. And so what happens is they trust And they're like the planted seed that's so shallow and has no roots. And the sun comes up and it's scorched and instantly they fall away. A conviction of sin is the only way to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And it's evidence that God did it. So then you're like, whoa, that's strong words. Was that true of me? Is that true of me now? Am I convicted of my sin, or does it not matter? Was there a time where God showed me there was no forgiveness? There's no forgiveness. There's no way I can forgive you. God forces you to know that first. There is no forgiveness. Nothing in your hands could you ever do to atone for your sins. It doesn't matter how much you do. God says, no, I will not accept it from you. You are a human, 
and you're a sinner, and sinners cannot atone for their sins. And then you hear the gospel. And then the gospel means something. And then the gospel is beautiful to you. And you're like, Jesus lived for me, and he died for me, and I am complete in him. That person will endure to the end. Do you see it? Did God plant the the seed in the field? Or did his enemy plant the seed in the field? Though any plant that God planted, he will harvest. And the way he plants a seed in your life is to show you you are not right with him. There is nothing to say. You are not right with him and there's nothing you can do. And it's done. Your offenses have already been happened. It's already happened. You're already condemned. When you feel it, and that's why last week I tried to say, what is a sin? Because we so lightly say it's a sin. It's no big deal. What is a transgression? What is an iniquity? You must feel it. It must be something serious, deadly serious to you. Then when you will repent, it's true repentance. Repentance is changing your full life, changing your whole heart. What I once thought, once I once held dear, I account as loss. For the riches in Christ, and I'll go with him. I will go to the despised, rejected David out in the wilderness because I know he's king. And no one else does. No one else thinks. Why would anyone? That's why we're mocked. That's why every real Christian for all of eternity, on this side of eternity, will be mocked. Because it makes no sense to people. Why would you not live the way you should? Why would you not try to get all you can? Why would you instead let someone else be your Lord? Why would you as a mighty man in sin have David as your captain? Or Jesus as your king? Because the Holy Spirit put you under conviction of sin. And you were sure, you were positive that all you had was hell. And then he shows the gospel. He showed the gospel of his son in you. And then you wanted it. Then you were serious. Then it was all you wanted, and you would trade the world for it. Because God did it. Do you see it? I'm going to be, this is a very simple message today. Did God put you under conviction of sin? Are you under conviction of sin? Are you as a believer under conviction of sin? Because believers can be put under conviction just as as what got you into the kingdom is the same as what keeps you into the kingdom. Why does God keep you saved? Because he keeps treating you the very same loving way. You are are my child. This is the road you walk on. You're mine. You don't belong to the world. You belong to me. And he does it himself in your life. So every time there is a spiritual dryness... Chris and I were talking about spiritual dryness. Every spiritual dryness is not not God um, putting his hand heavy. But that's the first one I think of. That's the first one. Is it possible that there's a conviction of sin? Have I sinned that God is now letting me know that I might repent? Because that's what a Christian does. A Christian repents and repents and repents. You are reconciled to God. God is not reconciled to you. God is God, and you are reconciled to him through the truth. And as you simply depend upon Christ and live in his power with his spirit, 
then that is, that's how you show. That is an evidence that there is life in you. Is there that evidence? The other one that if you have a spiritual dryness is simply it could be like the farmer. James said, be careful, brothers. Be like the farmer who's willing to wait for the harvest to grow. You've planted the seed. You've done your job. You've, you've watered it. You've waited. And you wait patiently for the early rains and the latter rains. Do you see it? There will be times that you look up God. God, I love you. And nothing happens. And God is saying, this place is not your home. This place is not your home. I'm not going to let you be so comfortable here. This is not a five-star experience for you. I want you to feel just the wilderness that you're in. God does that. And he does it out of kindness. So every time you're spiritually dry, you, you you test yourself. Am I under conviction of sin? Have I sinned? Is God putting his finger, the Holy Spirit, heavy on the sorest spot? Then you must do something. You must respond. If not, then be patient and wait for the rains. Not every frown is, God, I hate you. Not every time you can't feel God does that mean that you're not loved. You're simply, it's, you're simply not in glory yet. So until we are in glory together, we meet together, we encourage each other, we pray for each other, and we independently love God through Christ. And if there is need for repentance, repent. Repent. Repent right now. And then come and let's eat together.